The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I was recently reminded of um, something I experienced when I was in high school. I was, I think, a sophomore, and I was on my way into an English lit class, English literature class, and I arrived, we all sat down, and it was a test day, and the teacher said, hey, I'm gonna do something a little bit differently today. Uh, I'm going to ask you to just sit there for just 10 minutes silently, and I'm going to play some music for you. And so she, she got out a, a CD, tells you like the era that we're talking, okay? Some of you don't know what a CD is. Okay, so it's a little flat disc. Music came off of it, okay, so anyway. She put it in her CD player and she started playing and now I know that, I didn't know it was just classical music, but now I know it was, it was Mozart and we all just sat there listening to this classical music and I remember like kind of twiddling my thumbs like, listen lady, you probably don't understand, I was cramming down the hallway to get here. The longer we wake, like answers are leaving my brain right now, okay? So if we could just hurry this along, I'll get more questions correct. So anyway, we sat there and listened to the music at the end. She passed out the tests and we took the tests. And um, I don't really remember doing particularly uh, any better on the test after that. But I later, years later, I realized what that was all about. There was a study that was done called the Mozart effect. And they had studied the impact of Mozart's music on the brain. And they had discovered that certain, if you've listened for a prolonged period, um, some of a piece by Mozart, then um, for a certain period of time, it heightens a piece of your intelligence. Unfortunately, not all of your intelligence, or we would all have some answers that we need in our life. But anyway, it was a piece of your intelligence, and um, I think that's what that was about. She was trying to just start the uh, electrical activity in our brains in various parts. And since this study about what is the biological effect of music, it has captured kind of the imagination of scientists, and they've done many, many more studies over the last several decades. Because if you think about it, music plays a really central function in our lives. Um, Some uh, anthropologists have pointed out, you really never come across a a culture that's of of humans that has no music. Like you never across like some, come across some forgotten island somewhere that's never been discovered and find a people group that have no musical expression. It's something unique to us as humans and something that, that is, all, is culturally expressed but kind of ties humanity together. We express music. And so they've looked at uh, the brain. So let me just show you this one diagram of the brain because what's interesting is music highlights not just one part but it, goes, it kind of fires uh, electrical processes all over. So for example, um, rhythm, like to be able to appreciate uh, a beat you, it, it highlights the motor cortex and also the cerebellum. So you can see the motor cortex in green and then in the dark blue on the bottom, the cerebellum. A pitch and tone, to be able to, to understand the pitch and the tone, that's a completely different part of the brain that requires the auditory uh, cortex and then the prefrontal cortex. Um, memory, you know how you can like a song from your childhood or your adolescence, like you can still sing all the lyrics and know all the notes, it's because it's tied into your memory. That's from the hippocampus. Once you start moving 
or clapping or dancing or playing an instrument, once your body gets involved, that is a completely different part uh, of your brain. Like there's some songs like you just can't help but like start to move. That's a completely different part of your, uh, of your brain. That's the motor cortex and the sensory cortex. And then as we all know, man, music, it, it heightens our emotions. It's because um, there are part, the amygdala, part of your brain that controls your emotions, it starts firing that part of your emotions. So it's like, you know, like when you're driving down the highway and um, you turn that one Celine Dion song on and then at the crescendo of the song, the key change, you know, you roll down the windows, you're belting it out and you got, you know, chills going up your arm, you, you know, I mean, I don't know, like that's not me, okay? <laughs> I wouldn't do that, that'd be really awkward. You do, I, I don't do that. It affects us emotionally, like music, you hear certain songs, then it affects you emotionally. We all know about the power of music. We actually so take it for granted, we actually don't stop and think of like, it's really profound. Every human being that's ever lived, music's been a part of their life. There's very few things you can say about that. It's wired in to humanity. It has a profound effect on our bodies and our brains. But it's worth pausing and reflecting on the role of music among us as humans because in God's word, his, uh, one scholar put it like this, his ultimate piece of art. You know, he, God paints sunrises and sunsets every day and it's here and then it's gone and then on to the next. All of them are brilliant but they're here and then they, they're gone. But this piece of art, his word, is here for all time. And in this masterpiece, the largest book in the entire Bible, by a long shot, the most pages, the most words, the most ink spilled in the entire entirety of God's word, the largest book is the book of Psalms jam-packed full of songs and hymns and the instruction and command to praise and worship God. And so it's worth us stopping to say, like, why? Why is it so important to God? Like, there's no introduction that says, this book of Psalms is for the musical Christians, or it's not, there's not that, it's for all of us. Like, it's, why is it so important to God? singing and making uh, music in that context of worship. Why is that so important to God? It's worth pausing and reflecting. So what we're gonna do is I wanna look at a psalm, and this is what we're gonna do through this series. We're gonna look at a psalm, but I wanna highlight, we're gonna stop and probably actually spend the most time on the title of the psalm because we wanna give the backstory about the songwriter. So I want you to open with me to Psalm chapter 30. Here's where we're gonna, we're gonna start in this series. Open with me, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, it's always, it's gonna be up on the screens, but it's always better to follow along in your own copy. So if you have a physical Bible or you have a, a Bible app on your phone, grab that and open with me to Psalm chapter 30. <clears throat> Here's what it says. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Now we're gonna stop on this, on this title for a second. This is the very first part of the psalm. Now, if you're looking at, at your copy of the Bible, 
the translator of every version will typically, will always put a, a title at the beginning of the psalm. The title from the translator is usually, in, at least in my copy, it's emboldened and it's italicized and it comes first. That's just helpful from the translator to help organize the scripture. Then after that, in most psalms, you will see another title that is in all caps. That's what we just, we just read. Just for your study, the title that's from the translator that's bold and maybe italicized, that's helpful. It's, not, it's great that that's there. It helps us kind of find things quickly. But that is not technically part of the inspired word of God. The second title that's in all caps, that goes back to the ancient Hebrew. That is actually part of the word of God that's breathed out by God and has been preserved for all of history. That's actually part of the scripture itself. So that title, sometimes we just kind of breeze over it, but that title is important. It actually, it's instructive to us. And so we're, we're gonna stop on that today. Um, it starts by saying who the author of the psalm is. There are 150 psalms in total. 50 of them are anonymous. It doesn't record who wrote them. The rest, two-thirds, have an author. Uh, probably not surprising to you, most of the psalms that have an author are written by King David, like this psalm, the famous King David. It will say, a psalm of David. Sometimes that all, that's all it says. Now, uh, let, let's, uh, of all the authors that we're going to stop on through this series, this is one that's more familiar, that would be one of the more familiar ones. King David, the famous king. Who is this king? It's important to, to kind of know his background. For starters, King David is not, is the most important king of the Old Testament, but he's not the first king of Israel. Israel wanted a king, so they picked one. And they picked a guy named Saul. He was the first king. Why did they pick Saul? Because he looked like a king. The Bible says he was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. So like, think not like 6'2", 6'3", think like 6'9", 6'10". The type of person that when you see someone that tall, you're like, whoa, like that guy is tall, okay? That's what we're talking about. The guy was huge. Now, you probably uh, have the same thought I do. Height is not the best qualification for a leader of an entire nation, okay? That's not advisable to just pick someone based on that, but that's what they did. The problem with Saul is he was, he was tall, but he was also insecure, paranoid, shaky in his faith, not a good leader. Those are not good qualities for someone you want as a king. He eventually leads God's people away from God so finally God says, I'm done with Saul. And then he says, now I will choose a king for you. Saul is what they chose. David is what God chooses. He gets this prophet named Samuel and says, I'm going to tell you who's going to be the king. And so Samuel shows up in this little town of Bethlehem. There's a guy named Jesse. He has a bunch of sons. And he says, hey, I need to meet all your sons. One of them is going to be king. He's like, oh, well, here's the oldest 
That's not him. Well, here's the second guy. I mean, he's the athletic one, and this is the smart one, and then this is this one, and then this is this one. He gives all the sons, and he goes through uh, the sons. He says, is this it? He's like, there's no more sons. And the guy says, no, well, I mean, there is one. He's the youngest. He's, you know, he's the shepherd. You know, he's kind of a creative type. You know, he's just always with his harp and stuff like that. So, I mean, we could tell, you could get him if you want. I said, I want to see all the sons. So he brings in David, and here comes David, the youngest, the forgotten one, still smells like the pasture, and saw a Samuel hears from God, this is the one. And to everyone's shock, David gets anointed king. By the way, while Saul is still king. It's a little awkward, and that's going to cause some problems between Saul and David. Fast forward, what are the two things we learn about David? There are two things about David that are the most memorable attributes of David. One, he was a mighty, fearsome warrior, he was incredible. It started as a boy when he defeated the Philistines' champion, Goliath. And then they wrote a song about him. It was it's the top of the charts. Everyone knew the song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Again, not great for David and Saul's relationship. But everybody knew the song. In fact, even the Philistines, who they had just defeated, they knew the song. I mean, it was a regional hit. Everybody knew it. And he continued to, Saul wisely says, I'm going to keep David close so I can have my eyes on him. And he would send him off to battle. And David kept winning and winning and winning. And finally, Saul was so jealous, uh, he starts trying to kill David. And now David, this mighty warrior, is fleeing off by himself. And all of these incredible warriors from all over the region say, I'm running with that guy. And he had this whole crew of elite, legendary warriors that he gave a name. They're called his mighty men, his giborim in Hebrew. And they did incredible, legendary things. He was an incredible warrior. And eventually he becomes king. And uh, we don't know a ton about how his administration was run, like how he organized it. But one of the things that we know about that, he, that it t- takes time to explain that obviously he was passionate about is we, we know about his warriors. We know who his, his leaders, his military leaders were. We learn about that because that's one of the most memorable attributes of David. He was a warrior. Here's the second thing. He was a worshiper. Profound worshiper. They had a king who was a songwriter. Now, I imagine it's awkward when the king's like, I wrote a new song, do you like it? (laughs) We love it, it's the best song we ever heard. You know, like, it's great. But that's not the way it was with David. He wrote the 23rd Psalm. These are songs that have ministered to God's people for 3,000 years going. I mean, these are profound. He was an incredible songwriter, prolific songwriter, wrote more than 70 of the Psalms in the Bible. So profound was he as as a songwriter that he's remembered, and that flowed from his soul he was a, a warrior worship leader. It flowed from his soul to he's remembered in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. This is who God picked. Now, um, when we read in the, the histories about David, we are more, probably more familiar about his mighty men and the battles that he built and who his military leaders are. But actually, through the histories, after he becomes king, more is talked about how he administered his worship leading. 
It's just that that's a little bit you know, less dazzling when we read about how he appointed the Levites to how, what his warriors did. And so a lot of times we don't talk as much about how he set up and administered the worship of his kingdom. So what I need for you to do is I need you to nerd out with me a little bit and I want you to read, we're just gonna read through a couple of these passages really quick. Look at what it says about when David became king what he set up in his kingdom in reference to worship. This is in First Chronicles chapter 16. This is what it says. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. Asaph's name is worship leader. We're going to come back around to Asaph later in our series. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemiramoth, okay, there we go, Shemiramoth, um, and um, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. This is at the beginning of his reign, how he's setting up the worship leading in, in Israel. Okay, I want you to put on your leadership hat for a second. You're a business leader. You're a business owner, an executive, a CEO, a manager, whatever it is. You have a lot of things to organize. If you're a business leader, an executive, you've got like, there's a certain altitude layer that you need to stay at. You can't get down in the weeds and everything. In fact, that's your role. You raise up leaders that are handling some of these details, but you're trying to stay at a certain altitude level. I mean, you've got to delegate that down, empower that authority down, raise up leaders who can do those things. If you're always down in the weeds, you're not going to get anything done, okay? However, there's probably one or two things that either you are so uniquely gifted at or you are so uh, passionate about, you are willing to get down in the weeds on that particular part of, the, part of your responsibility. One, I want you to notice how in the weeds... David is on the worship leading in the kingdom. There's a lot he's got to think about. He's got to think about the military safety. He's got to think about the economy. He's got to think about the justice system. He's got to think about all kinds of things. He's got a court to set up and all these kinds of things. But look at how in the weeds, he says, Asaph, you're on cymbals. Jedediah, Maniah, you're on the trumpet. Okay, you guys are singing this song. This is when you're, you're singing here. I mean, look how far in the weeds he is on the worship leading. Why is, he, why is he doing all that? This is that important to David. He's a warrior and he is a worship leader. Okay, that's the beginning of his reign. Look at how much he dedicates through his reign the worship leading. He builds a whole structure that's eye-popping because worship is that important. He's setting a culture of worship in his kingdom. Listen to this. When David was old and full of days, it's the end of his, his life, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. That's the tribe that were the ministers. The Levites... Um, and the priests, the Levites, 30 years old and upward, were numbered, and the total was 38,000 men. 
Watch this, 24,000 of these, David said, shall have charge of the work in the house of the Lord. 6,000 should be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. You see that? That's a big worship ministry. 4,000 he set aside to be musicians. He's got... 28,000 ministering in the house of the Lord. He's got another about 10,000 that he's setting aside to do the pastoral work, to help discern and to help uh, judge between people in disputes, to do that kind of shepherding work. And then 4,000 worship leaders that are leading worship with instruments he has provided for them. His, the, the worship culture that David set up in his kingdom is so strong that four to 500 years later, already Jerusalem has, uh, we've had generations from King David all sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Eventually they turn away from God, the Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, they take people into exile back to Babylon. A couple generations later, the, uh, under the Persian Empire, they come back, Ezra leads them back and they lay the foundation of the temple. Hundreds of years later, look what it says. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Do you see that? They, all those centuries later, they are still worshiping under the instructions that David gave them hundreds of years before. And they go on to sing. They sing a praise, they give thanks to the Lord. They go on to, to sing, in, in, and we see in that moment when the, the foundation is laid. But I want you to see David, two things. Incredible warrior. God gives him peace around all sides of his kingdom. He was remembered for his might. He was a warrior and a worship leader. He, he, God picked someone who had those two strengths. He wanted someone that would start an entire culture, that would protect them militarily, but would start an entire culture of worship. So great was his desire to worship is he, it came time, he said, look, God, we've got the tabernacle from the days of Moses. It's this portable tent. I want to build you a glorious temple. He wanted to do that. But so great was he, was he as a warrior that God says, no, David, your hands are too bloody. Your son is going to, be, to build it. He was a warrior worship leader. That's who God chose to be king. And remember, this is the king. This is the line through the rest of the, all the other kings in Jerusalem go back to King David. They all follow in his line. In fact, there was a covenant with David that from his line would come the king that would reign for all time, the Messiah. The gospel writers make sure we know Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to, back to David. This is not just a king. This is the Old Testament king and God selected a warrior worship leader to write this, to, to write so much of it and to write in that culture. This psalm is a psalm of David and it's a dedication, it's for the dedication of the temple. Now before, we're gonna quickly read through this psalm, but as we do this, I wanna just, I want you to think about this. Remember, David never built the temple. So if he's writing a dedication of the temple, he's writing it in faith and leaving it behind 
for future generations to sing at a moment he will not be alive for. What, what did he write? Well, I mean, that's a big moment. The temple's built. It's being dedicated. What is the debut song at the temple? What's it going to be? This is the song. What does he say? Chapter 30, verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. That's a a command, by the way. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping, it's a famous line, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Beautiful psalm. What does he say? He says, I was down in Sheol, I was down in death and you rose me to life. This is a psalm about resurrection. He had something bad going on. His foes were coming around him, but God raised him out. You know, there's actually an episode in David's life that's the background of this, of this psalm. It, it went like this. This was late in David's reign. And remember, David's military power, God gave him early in his reign peace on all sides. Philistines weren't bothering him. There were different, different groups were not bothering. There was peace. But one day, David pulls his general in, and he says, um, General, uh, I want you to take a census of our people. And the general says, King David, please don't do this. Don't, don't sin like this. Why is that a sin? Why is a census a sin? Is, it, is there something in the Bible against taking a census? No, actually, there's, um, you can take a census in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's even laws about that. And back in the Torah, you can take a census. What was, then what was wrong? Why was the general so worked up? It was the type of census he wanted this guy to take. He wanted to take a military census. So he, the general goes around, counts all their warriors, and comes back and gives them a report, not just of the number of people, he gives them a report of the number of their warriors. Now, why is David escalating militarily right now if there's peace on all sides of him? Historians say this is a move a king would do if he's about to go on conquest. See, David had forgotten something. This wasn't his kingdom, it was God's kingdom. And so David is doing what every other king in his generation would do. Hey, we've got power. No one wants to mess with us. Let's go get a little bit more. Let's go get a little land. Let's take it from them. Let's take it from them. They won't stop us. And he he was going into conquest mode, which is not his role. He was forgetting who actually was ruling. It wasn't King David. It was God Almighty. He thought he was the one that was in charge. He thought it was for him. He thought he was the center. If he wants to go get more, if he wants to go oppress others and steal from others, he's going to do it. He forgot who was really the king. He started going after his kingdom, not God's kingdom, and there were dire consequences of that. In a profound, fascinating passage, there's consequences that the entire nation is gonna experience, and actually God lets David pick which consequence gives him three options. And David says, "I, I would rather just be in your hands. And so God sends a warrior angel to march through Israel and they felt the consequences, many died. And on the third day, it says David looked up 
to the hill right above Jerusalem, and God gives him the sight to actually see the angel. Imagine how terrifying. He had already marched through the northern part of Israel, and now he's coming for the capital. He's coming for where David is. He's coming for, for Jerusalem, and he's got his, his sword lifted up. And at that moment, God holds the angel's hand back, and he has mercy on David and his people, and there's no more judgment on the third day. A prophet comes to David and says, David, that spot where you saw that angel stop and where he had, God had mercy on you, go by that spot and make it, for the, make it the spot for the temple. David goes and talks to the man and says, I'd like to buy this for the temple. He says, King, if you want it, you can have it. He says, no, no, no. I'm not going to accept this for free. I'm not gonna offer something to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. He buys the property and eventually reserves that for Solomon to build the temple on that. And that's significant. Why? It's recorded in Scripture. Why is that so significant? Because it is at that spot where David saw judgment coming down that they deserved, but God had mercy. It's on that very spot where generation after generation after generation would approach the temple, the presence of God, deserving justice and wrath from God, but would bring a sacrifice and God would have mercy. That's the very spot throughout the generations where people would come to find mercy. He sets up the temple and he gives them a song, he gets prepared for Solomon to build a temple, and he gives them a psalm to be reminded, God is the one that brings us up from the pit, God is the God that resurrects you. Let's move to the rest of this quickly. What does he say? Let's pick it up in verse six. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. What does he say? He says, man, when everything was going good, I was in my prosperity. He said, I will not be moved. That's the type of thing you say about God. God is the rock, the unmovable rock on which we stand. But David said, when, I was, when things were going well, I was in my prosperity, that's what I was saying about myself. And you had to cure that from me. I forgot. Isn't that so true? Sometimes when our circumstances are at their best, our souls are at their worst. We forget, we forget desperation, dependence, worship, who the real provider is, who the real protector is, who it's really all about. And it's so easy, instead of offering praise to God, to do what David did and offered praise to himself. Things are going great. Well, I never stopped believing in myself. And yeah, it's just for all my hard work. And maybe I'll write a book so other people can learn, because this is what I did. And if you do what I did, clearly you will be as, as successful as I am, because I did it myself. When, we, when things are going well, sometimes our soul's at their worst. David needed to be reminded of who was really the one that had sustained him. So he ends with this, verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my, my, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. 
O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You've turned my mourning into dancing. My darkness, finally, the light has dawned. I was in death, but you rose me back up. How could I keep silent? I will sing praise to you. Why is music and worshiping musically before God, why is that so important to God? Like, why is it so important that if the largest book in the Bible is just full of songs to sing to him? Why is that so important, like, that that, that, would, that, that would be a command? I don't know if you, you verse 4, it, it's like, sing, you his people. Like, he's commanding us to sing. It's not an option. Like, he's told us and commanded us to sing. Why is that so important to God? Why is it so important to establish a king, the king of the Old Testament, that's going to set a culture that would stand for hundreds of years of being a people that worship and sing and make music back to God. Like, why is that so important to God? There is a power that God has wired into music that it's created a tool for us that if we step into this command from God to worship him musically, there is a transformational power that he wants to work in our lives. You know, there's, um, there's things that, that music does, as we talked about, music stirs up our emotions. There are also some studies that music actually um, uh, reduces pain. In fact, there's, there's also a lot of studies about the power of music to, to bring back and stimulate memory. There was a study done on Alzheimer's patients that were so advanced in Alzheimer's that they could no longer communicate. But they played songs from their childhood. And not only could these um, uh, non-communicative Alzheimer's patients start to communicate, they could sing and remember the lyrics of those songs. In fact, some could even start communicating verbally if that song was playing. They've tested uh, stroke victims. And there's one test where they, they took a control group and they, for two months, did therapy without any, listening to anything. One group did therapy while listening to an audio group book. And one group did therapy while listening to music. And the group that was listening to music, um, their bodies remembered some of the functioning, walking, talking, moving, that the, far better than the other control groups did. There's a power God has wired into music. He's given given us it as a tool. Why? He wants to stir up our hearts, emotions. He wants us, when we enter into his presence, carrying the burden and the pain and the anxiety that we have, it soothes our soul and it does for us what David needed this song to do. It makes us remember It makes us remember the truths that we have the propensity to stray from. We walk in, and he's, what is he doing? We walk into his presence, and we start singing, and he's firing all through our brains, and he's causing, he's soothing us. He's, He's drawing our emotions and our affection towards him, and he's reminding us of the truths that the craziness of the world has made us forget. See, what he does when we sing and make music and worship God He is transforming our hearts in that moment. Here's what he's doing. He's fighting a battle for your heart. 
See, like, when it comes to our, the battles of this world, we always think our battles are our circumstances. And we always come to God and we say, God, look, I've got this person at work. I've got this friend that's, that, that's betrayed me. I've, I've got this, this, uh, this love re- relationship that didn't turn out the way it did. Or I'm waiting for that romantic relationship. Or I've got these financial needs. Or I've got these medical needs. And I've got all these circumstances. And we think the battleground is for our circumstances. And so when we come to God, it's like, God, could you fix this circumstance? God, could you fix this circumstance? God, fix it. You haven't fixed it yet. When are you going to fix it? What do I have to do for you to fix it? And he says, I want to do a more profound battle. I want to win something far more profound than just your circumstances. I want to win your heart, he says. Because if he can win your heart, then here's what he can do. He says, I I want to stir up your affections so you put aside the idols that you think your life depends on. I'm trying to pry your grip off your idols that the craziness of the world has gotten you to seek after. I'm trying to, he says, I'm trying to pry your heart, the grip of your heart off of these sin addictions and sin struggles so that you stop thinking, look, this sin, God, is really what brings me life. Don't make me give it up, but fine, I'll do it. He says, don't you know my way brings life? You've just forgotten. You think the ways of the world, the ways of the devil are gonna bring you life? He says, it's gonna tear you down, and I love you too much. I'm trying to pry your hands off it. He's battling for your heart. And if he can win that battle, you win all the battles. Because here's what happens. He wants, you to, he wants your heart to be anchored and soaring in the love and presence of God so that it's not so fickle to be dependent on your circumstances. See, here's what he wants to do for you. He says, I know it would make you feel joy if I made all your circumstances be fixed. I want to do something more profound for you, he says. I want to give you joy that is untouchable by your circumstances. He says, I want to give you joy that's invincible. I'm no longer content by giving you a joy that's dependent. Well, I had a good day, so I'm full of joy. I had a bad day, I'm bad with joy. And up and down, up and down. He says, I want to give you invincible joy so that I'm going going to give you joy that your circumstances can't touch. That's what I'm trying to win your heart. He says this, he says, look, I I know that suddenly all your stress would be lifted if I fix that financial issue, if I fix that, that medical issue, if I fix this. I know all of your anxiety you think would suddenly go away until the next issue came up. And he says, I want to give you peace and rest and patience and trust and faith that is untouchable by your circumstances. So he's trying to capture your heart. Because listen, here's the honest truth. Your circumstances and my circumstances, it is nothing for God to fix them. Your circumstances are not the problem. He's doing a battle for your heart. And when he calls you into his presence, he's saying, I want you to sing. 
I want you to, I, I want you to, to worship me. I want you to declare those songs. And he says, I want generation after generation to take advantage of this gift called music that I've given them to fire all over their brains and to soothe them from the pain that they're feeling, to be able to, to, to have their emotions towards me engage, for them to be reminded and re-anchored on the truths so they can recall them time and time again. He wants you to take advantage of this call to worship him. That's why he gave the primary king of his kingdom of the Old Testament and made him a worship leader. Church, when we see what this says and what God did, don't underestimate the power of worship that it's supposed to have in your life. Don't underestimate it. Here's what we so often do. We forget a message like this that David says in this psalm where the psalm says, God, this is who you are. You, you raised us up from the pit and you remind us of our dependency on you. See, so often when circumstances are good or we just get in a pattern of thinking, yeah, I, I'm fine. I got it, but if you got any tips for me, let me know, God. I, could just, I just need a little help here, but I got it. We need to be reminded of our desperation. And so when you think about coming to church, if all I need is a couple tips to fix things, then I'm coming and I'm like, look, I don't really, I mean, the music's great. If I like the song, maybe it's, it's helpful. But look, you got any tips for me? Is this relevant to what I'm going through? You got something for me? No? All right, well, maybe next time. But he says, no, 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 when you know your desperation, the worship music, it's not just the previews before the, mu- before the movie. The worship music, we're coming to sing to him and he's doing a transforming work in us. Why do we want to carry on the tradition of God's people? Why do we want to carry on and for us to have a culture of worship at City River? Why would we want that? Because we believe the work that he wants to do of transforming our lives as we sing. Why would we want that? Because... Because listen, that's what you were fundamentally made for, to bring glory to God. The only reason you and I exist is to bring glory to God. And when we sing, we're doing the most primal thing any part of creation could possibly do in worshiping God. That's why Jesus said, as he was going into Jerusalem, and they're all praising him, and the Pharisees are like, don't let them praise you, stop them. Tell them to be silent. He said, if these were silent, even the rocks would cry out. When we're worshiping, We're being transformed by his truth. When we're worshiping, we're doing the most fundamental thing creation can do is offer praise back to him. And when we're worshiping, why would we worship? Why would we want to have a culture of fervent worship as a church? Because isn't your God worthy of it? Where would you be, church? Where would you be if your Jesus hadn't saved you? Where would you be without his constant protective blessing in your life? Where would you be if he hadn't raised you up out of the pit? What sin would you have fallen so deeply into that your life would be ruined? Where would you be if Jesus hadn't raised you up? Where would your future be if you weren't at rest that it's he who reigns over all and you are not dependent on any other earthly rule in this world. You are dependent on Jesus. Where would your future be? Church, where would your eternity be without Jesus? 
You'd be destined to an eternity away from God, facing the wrath that your sins deserve. But your Jesus gives you, redeems your past, gives your presence purpose, protects your present, and gives you an eternity for all time. That's what your Jesus, isn't he worthy of your praise, church? He's worthy of all the praise that we can offer him. That's why his people praise him. That's why he praises, that's why we praise him. That's why, can I challenge you? Don't underestimate the power that worship music is to have in your life. Let loose that gift and be transformed. Make it a priority in your life, not just an extra, because it's commanded by God, and when he commands something, it's for your good. Let's pray. Some of you are here today, and if you were honest, you'd say, look, I don't know that my life's been redeemed from the pit. I don't, I don't know for sure I'm gonna be saved for eternity. Run to Jesus today, please. That salvation is offered you uh, as a gift. He is offering resurrection to you as a gift to raise you up, bring a, a, a morning, a new dawn to the darkness that, that is in your life, to bring purpose in your life, to bring protection in your life, bring fatherhood into your life. And he wants to save you for eternity so that even death cannot touch you. Turn to Jesus. You say, how do I do that? Just receive him as your savior. He was the ultimate sacrifice that died in your place and rose again. That's offered on your behalf. Just receive that today. If that's you, let me lead you in this prayer. Just silently say this prayer to him. He hears you. Almighty God hears you. Just say, God, thank you for saving me. I surrender my life to you. I will follow after you, Jesus. And I know because of your work that I will spend eternity in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.